We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 33 this morning. So if you would turn to your Bible in Genesis 33. I've titled this lesson, Distrust Amongst the Brothers. And one of the things that occurred to me while I was meditating on this, it's easy to look at the people in the Bible that we know are God's people and see them as moral examples we should follow. And there's some element of truth to that. But what I think and what I'm going to try to show in this chapter is Jacob, one of the patriarchs, he demonstrates a person upon whom God's hand was, no question about that, yet he serves an example of how desperately we need Christ in our lives. And there is not a one person in the scripture, mortal, that does not have that need. And so we don't look to these people as moral examples we should follow completely, only. We look at them and see God used these people, this man, and he was a deceiver. He was a distrustful man, and he had need of Christ. We can identify with that to some degree. So Genesis chapter 3. A little bit of background, I want to go back to chapter 32 to set this up and look at verses 3 through 5. Genesis 32, 3 through 5. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my Lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. So Jacob has a plan that he set up in chapter 32, and his plan reveals somewhat of a distrust of his brother Esau. He doesn't know what to expect. They didn't part on the best of terms, and so he's still leery about what will happen when he sees Esau. He's concerned that Esau might mean him harm. So he wants to put a favorable showing and give him gifts. This fear of man and this distrust of his brother go hand in hand most of the time. Now, it's often good to distrust somebody. But too often, distrusting someone is the result of fear of loss or fear of what's unexpected or fear of something we can't out and manage ourselves. And that's another thing altogether than worthy distrust, you might call it. So in our chapter, the first three verses read like this. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were four hundred men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So Jacob was looking for Esau. And you recall, we read from chapter 32, he sent people out ahead of time to find out what he could expect when he did see Esau. 
And so he sees Esau approaching him and he proceeds with the plan that he made. Now, the 400 men that Esau had with him was an imposing force. You recall that when Abraham went and defeated the five kings of the Sodom area, he had 318. Esau has a bigger force than Abraham did. It's easy to see how Jacob could be intimidated by this. But we see no evidence in our passage in this whole chapter. We see no evidence that Esau intended to intimidate or bring harm to Jacob. Jacob's actions reflect a younger man giving honor to his elder. And they also reflect the actions of a man who feared another. And Jacob, Jacob's clan was organized for the journey according to how he valued them. He puts Leah and her children in front of Rachel and her children because you recall from a long time ago when he went to Laban to get a wife, he got tricked into getting Leah as a wife first. And Rachel is the one he loved. And God favored Leah more than Rachel, but we've been over that before. So this reflects his personal value. He keeps Rachel and Joseph at the back away from danger. He goes up and he bows seven times in humility before Esau. So this this type of fear, anxiety, are marks of people who are not trusting in God. And this can happen to each one of us in a given instant. We have periods of time where we have fear of the unknown, where we don't trust somebody that we should, and that marks a lack of trust in God. There's a guy that lived back in the uh, early 1500s in Austria named Leonard Schemer. He was a monk, and he came out of that. And written just before he was executed in 1528, he wrote a prayer. And I want to read part of that to you. Get this guy's perspective on things. He and his wife were in prison. He doesn't know it yet. But later this day, when he wrote this, he's executed. He, he said, Oh, almighty eternal God, we recognize that we are weak. And pray that you would strengthen us with the power of your Holy Spirit, that he would extinguish all human fear in us, O eternal God. Forgive us all our sins, O Almighty Father. We pray for all our enemies, that you would forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. We pray also for all true-hearted people who hunger for and thirst after your divine righteousness, that you would satisfy them with imperishable food which remains to eternal life. O oh, eternal heavenly Father, we praise, honor, and thank you that you have so graciously called us out of the terrible darkness of this world into your marvelous light, which you have hidden from the wise of this world, but revealed to the humble in spirit. This is the perspective that people whom God has called to himself ought to have. Not fear of man, but right fear of God. We believers have the complete canon, and so we have a better understanding of the will of God in this regard. And we ought not to allow the fear of man to distract us from seeking first the kingdom of God. For us and for those that we fear. You know, it's this guy asking God to bring his enemies to a knowledge of Christ. Those that are opposed to us, we ought to be 
asking God to break their heart and give them a new heart of flesh that they might know Christ in the way that we do. The Lord tells us that no one can serve two masters, for he, he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be loyal to one and despise the other. And so while we live in the world, we cannot be devoted to it. And we are to be single-minded, focused rightly on fearing God, that we would please Him by how we walk in this wicked world. Let's go on to the next few verses, 4-11. through 11. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and he saw the women and children and said, Who are those with you? Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor on your sight, then receive my present from my hand inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And so he urged him and he took it. Now, the meetings of these two brothers after many years apart was quite emotional. I don't see my brother on a regular basis. The last time I did see him, it wasn't very emotional. We just don't have a lot in common. So I understand this reunion, from my perspective, is rather unusual and quite encouraging. Brother Gill, John Gill, he was of the opinion that Esau running to Jacob was foretelling and very similar to the way the father in Luke 15 ran to the prodigal son. There's no indication, as I mentioned earlier, there's no indication here that Esau meant harm to Jacob. He, he looks eager to be reunited with his brother. He's curious as about this big company that has come with Jacob. What's it all about? And Jacob and his people continue to honor Esau. And before Esau, bear this in mind, all these children that come with Leah and Rachel... We have 11 of the 12 tribes represented here. Jacob may not know that that's what's here. Esau probably doesn't know that that's who's here. But that's what's present at this reunion is 11 of the 12 tribes of what would be God's covenant people for a time and a space. As we read in chapter 32 and also in our chapter, the way I see it, Jacob is in fear of Esau and he is seeking to gain favor with him so that Esau would look with him in kindness and not do whatever fear Jacob imagines. This is typical of Near East customs where you don't 
address an issue head on, but you talk around it and try to get to it another way. And it's also typical of Eastern cultures to this day where saving face is the goal in life. And debasing yourself and esteeming the other person, that is how you maintain good relations. And so Jacob presses on Esau to accept his gift. When you accept a gift, you're indebted to the giver. That's the mindset. Ron Crisp observed, Both men use restraint and wisdom by not mentioning the former problems. Many people never learn the art of leaving possible causes of provocation alone. Notice how eager Jacob was to have Esau receive this gift. In ancient times, the reception of a gift was a sign of goodwill. Jacob would have doubted Esau's intent had he refused the gift. See, that's true, but that's only part of the picture. Note the way that Jacob speaks. He starts off by giving God the proper credit with giving him children. He declares that seeing Esau's face is like seeing the face of Yahweh. And then he finished by giving God credit for every good thing that he has. Now, it's possible Jacob was simply being grateful by saying Esau's face was like seeing God's face. Because Jacob does see all good things coming from God. Esau is older and greater than Jacob, able to do good, to do good things for him and to bring him harm. And so Jacob is, again, esteeming. He calls Esau his lord and he calls himself his servant. He's esteeming Esau and he's lowering himself. This is not a bad position. Why one does it is the key. Got to see where I am on my notes here. Um, So one thing that dawned on me is we have to be careful not to assign God's attributes to man or make unreasonable, favorable comparisons with God. We're made in the image of God, but God is not made in our image. So we have to be careful how we approach this. And Jacob's statement about seeing God's face in Esau strikes me to be his fear of Esau, and that drives him to esteem Esau too much. The fear of man brings a snare, Proverbs 29.25 says, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So there's one ditch on the road is trusting in man too much. On the other side of the road is to think too highly of yourself. Both of these are snares. Our Lord tells us, do not fear those who can kill the body. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So man can do terrible things to us and across our country and across the world. Man is doing horrible things to man. Those who are in Christ are often taking the brunt of the debauchery and the murder and the mayhem that is going on. Fear not 
man who can only kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Do you see the security that we have that those who are not in Christ do not have? We fear one who has secured our eternal life. What have we to fear with those who cannot take that away from us? It's impossible to esteem God too highly. We can't esteem man too much. We are unable to esteem God too much. His honor and glory is not dependent on any created thing, and He demands our worship and reverence far beyond any worship and reverence we can give to man. Let's look at uh, verses 12 through 17. Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before a servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and seer. And Esau said, now let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, Esau made clear that his desire was for Jacob and his clan to travel with him and settle down near him. Come with me. Again, there's nothing in our passage to indicate that Esau was being duplicitous, trying to trick Jacob, trying to take advantage of him like Laban had done countless times. Jacob's protest that the condition of the herd is fragile, they kind of probably overdid it, they'll die within a day. I, I don't know that much about livestock, but I don't think they'd all die in a day. But it gave him an excuse to not follow on with him. I'll follow on slowly, he said. Gil thinks that Jacob made this excuse to Esau so as to not refuse him to his face. Again, in that culture, you don't want to refuse somebody face to face. Remember the tale of the two sons? The one says, I'll do it, and he didn't. And the one says, I won't, but he did. Well, in this culture, what's pursued as a higher value is to say something and not do it. That's what Esau does. When he left Laban, he waited until he was three days away shearing sheep and he left without telling anything to anybody because he feared Laban was going to take his wives back and take all of his stuff. Feared Laban's actions. So, 400 men that Esau had, he wanted to leave some of those with Jacob to show him the way, guard him on the road, and, and that would present Esau as an honorable man, taking care of his people. And though Esau took the gift that Jacob offered, and remember Ron Crisp said that that would have given Jacob reason to doubt his intention if he didn't take it. He took Jacob's gift. 
Jacob would not accept the favor Esau offered him. Does this give Esau reason to doubt Jacob's intent? After Esau started on his way to Seir, Seir is south of the Red Sea. After Jacob, after Esau started on his way there, Jacob went another way. He went to Succoth, which is north of the Red Sea. Once there, Jacob built himself a house. He had booths built. And the name of the place is called Booths because of what he did there. Everything Jacob said was part and parcel of his plan, as I see it, to deceive Esau so he would not have to be with him. My flock's all going to die within a day, so I'll follow on behind you slowly. And after Esau goes on his way and he's out of sight, Jacob hightails it and he goes another direction. Same old Jacob. Same old Jacob. Not the stand-up patriarch that we would like to see. Not at this point in his life. Eastern cultures, they embrace and they live in this idea of face-saving tactics where gaining the respect of others is the goal. And so this means that you have to live and act differently around these people than you do amongst your own folks. Scripture tells us that we are to let our yes be yes, and that we are to do nothing in a corner, as it's written, as if to hide what we're doing or hide our intentions. Scripture says, whenever I'm afraid... Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Psalm 56, 3 and 4. See, no author of New Testament scripture engages in this type of face-saving deception that we see in this culture in which Jacob lived. Now, he's living in a time and place where this is the way people behaved. So you can't blame him for living this away. Here we are several thousand years later and we have the complete scriptures. We have the spirit of God indwelling on us, giving us wisdom and illumination of what the word means. We have to see this for what it is. It's not the proper way for saints to behave. Speak plainly in love not speaking lies to one another. When we speak plainly, we may incur opposition. I believe that Jacob here is living down to his birth name. He's a deceiver. And he's not living up to the name given by him, given to him by Yahweh in chapter 32, where he is called Israel. And he's referred to as Jacob quite a few times. And you remember when he was born, he was grabbing the heel of Esau. That's what his name reflects. Heel grabber, deceiver. But in all of this, In all of what we've just read and talked about, 
the hand of God's providence is guiding Jacob to go where God wants him to go. He is one of the three patriarchs and he must be in Canaan. And that's where we're going to see he ends up. The last three verses of our chapter. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padam Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamar, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Eloi Israel. Now, after some time, maybe as much as a year, he had been in Succoth. After that time, he moves about eight miles south to Shechem. Shechem, the Bible says, is in Canaan. Canaan is where he's supposed to be, isn't it? That's the promised land. So, he camps near the city, not in it. He bought part of a field for an unknown sum. A hundred pieces of money, it says in the New King James. The Greek Old Testament says that the price was a hundred lambs. The money mentioned is without identification. It doesn't tell us what the coins are, how much it's worth or anything. It's just a hundred pieces of it. Gill thinks that each piece of money was worth a lamb, reflecting kind of what the Septuagint says. It's safe to conclude, without knowing the details, that it was a significant sum. It reflects the wealth of Jacob, and it also reflects his intent to be a part of that community. He set up an altar to remind him of God's promises. And the New King James has it as El Eloi Israel. It's a non-translation of the Hebrew. This phrase is translated as the God of Israel is God or God, the God of Israel. See, that's what Jacob is saying. This altar is to God, the God of Israel. There is no other God that Jacob can have confidence in. That's what he is saying. There is one God, and it is the God of Israel. He is the one who's promised all these great and mighty things for the patriarchs. And he is the one who has promised to do all these great and mighty things for all of the people that would lead the twelve tribes that would be Jacob's offspring, the twelve leaders of those tribes. There is no lesser God that can do these things. All the other lowercase g gods in Scripture are mocked and ridiculed by the one God who is. And so we ought not to ever think that these gods that our fellow Americans follow after are anything to be feared, anything to have any regard of. Because there is one God, the God of Israel, who is and who has been and who will be. So with this view of God, why would Jacob fear Esau? Perhaps the kindest view is to recognize that he's living in the culture that has those values, that he didn't have the whole counsel of God, that he didn't have the Holy Spirit living in him because Pentecost hadn't come yet. 
we have advantages he didn't. So my goal here is not to look down on Jacob, but simply to recognize that he did some things that we should learn from, that this is not the model for us to live. We who have Christ, we who are in Christ, have the Spirit, and we have the complete canon of Scripture. And so we are without excuse. None of us should fear what man can do, and each of us should boast in God and trust Him without any doubts about His character, about His might, or about His love for His children. We can trust God because He intends good for us. Be hard to trust God if, like Jacob looking at Esau, feared He might do you harm. That type of fear breeds distrust. If you think God is out to do you harm, you're not going to trust Him wholly like you ought to. So the conclusion of this. We live in a culture here in the United States that is rapidly moving headlong into what they call, sociologists call a high context culture. That's what these Eastern cultures are called, high context, where saving face and living under the pressure of how others view you is the highest concern. People living in these cultures place a lot of value on such things such as how other peoples view them, how much they do or do not stand out compared to others, and how they fit into the social structure around them. The Japanese are taught to excel in school, but don't let it be known amongst your peers. Don't boast about it amongst your peers because you don't want them to envy you because they might then do you harm. That's what this whole culture that I'm talking about involves. When anything is offensive to someone, and the taking of offense is the basis for action, subjectivism rules, forcing people to live in fear of offending anyone, distrusting those who may pop out and, sh- and catch them saying or doing something offensive. In our day, speaking truth, Proclaiming the glorious gospel of Christ is offensive to many. And these self-appointed judges grow more bold each week as they try to shut down and shout down nonconformists in their midst. In our day, the state church is not the Roman Catholic religion. 500 years ago, when Baptists were being brought up and being called Baptists and forming their beliefs, they were nonconformist, and the state church on the continent and the state church in England persecuted them. The state church in the colonies persecuted them because they did not conform. The, the religion that we face in our day is postmodernism. Postmodern religion abhors truth and all who hold to it. So you wonder why your unregenerate friends and neighbors. They don't like what you believe. They don't understand what you believe. And they're tired of hearing about it. Because they are suppressing their knowledge of the truth by their unrighteousness, Paul wrote. They can't stand truth because truth opposes their sin. 
It's our nature to distrust and fear people and fear the future. Finite beings, we can't control everything that goes on in our lives. And that tends to, if we allow it, to bring fear. Do I have enough money to retire on? Are my kids going to do right in the world? We don't know. We, we can't affect the outcome we want. Natural man's going to fear because he can't control it. The regenerate man, the man who's in Christ, ought to trust God who works out all things. How often do we read that? He works out all things for the good of those who are called by His name, for those who love Him. All things for our good. He, he doesn't have a problem doing that. We should trust Him. Once sin corrupted our being, we have been prone to distrust, to fear, and to worry. Cain distrusted God and he feared loss. He didn't fear God. This combination is deadly and it's most common and it appears to be what plagued Jacob. But we can't know for certain when he obtained the faith of Abraham. We can have an opinion, but it's hard to know when in Scripture did Jacob come to that faith that his father Abraham had. We see a man with one foot in the city of God and the other foot in the city of man. That's how we often walk those Christians, isn't it? We're drawn aside by the things of the world when we should be captivated by the things of God. And it makes it difficult to determine to which city do we belong. Let's look at Matthew 6 for a second. This is something that a fellow preached on in Bernie last week when we were there. And it just hit me. Matthew 6, 25, 25 through 34. And I'm going to read this and not say anything about it. Just listen, listen to the words. Kyle's preached on this not too long ago, so it ought to be fresh in your mind. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither see, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly father, this guy last week, he said, it doesn't say the bird's heavenly father. It says your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature or to his life, one measure to his life? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is our King speaking. Do not worry about your life. 
All things of this life are provided for by God to even the least of creatures. Two sparrows are sold for a penny. They're worthless birds. And your heavenly Father sees to it they have food. He knows the number of hairs on your head, how many or how few there are. And he promised to take care of your needs. Do not worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble and we can't even live in tomorrow. This uh, guy from the 16th century went on in his prayer. He said, O eternal Father, we pray to you for all brothers and sisters. You would keep them in your divine name that they may walk faithful to your commandments. Drink, bravely drink the cup which you will pour for us. We pray also for all kings and rulers that you would enlighten them with your divine truth so they may use the power you have given them for the protection of the pious and punishment of the evil ones that they may not wrongly shed innocent blood. O eternal God, we pray that you would send workers into your vineyards for the harvest is great and the workers are few. We pray also for all witnesses who have been sent into all the world. 1528, that you would strengthen them with the power of your Holy Spirit, that he may extinguish in us all human fear, and they may proclaim your word fearlessly. Sustain us in your divine name, and do not let us turn from you the fountain of living water, whether things present or things to come, whether height or depth or life or any other creature, that we may remain faithful in true faith to the end. We ask this In the name of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, our Father. See, this brother's goal, this brother's desire of his heart is focused on God's will, God's glory. His desire on the eve of his execution was that they would all be faithful to the end, trusting in God and not fearing what man could do. You know what James said about fearing man? James chapter 4, 13 through 15. Come now, come now, you who'd say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. We, (laughs) you know what he says? He goes on to say your boasting is arrogant. If you say I'm going to go to this town and do such and such next year, that's boasting and it's arrogant because you you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know if you will be alive tomorrow. So your attitude ought to be if the Lord wills, I will live tomorrow. And if the Lord wills, I will do such and such. Not to think we have it in ourselves, but to remind ourselves such is a gift from God. In the face of all of our opposition, our solution is the same. We are to trust in the one who defeated sin and death for us, who drank the cup of wrath that was ours. We trust in those he's gathered together. If you are in Christ and we belong to one another in this local assembly of saints, I am called to trust you. 
unless and until you give me reason not to. Right? There are places where we have to have a face up and reconcile differences. And oftentimes that's because of misunderstanding and distrust. But if we truly love one another as Christ has loved us, we must trust one another implicitly. Romans 12 talks about this. 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Be patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. That's how we're supposed to relate to one another at Community Baptist here in Elmendorf, is to love without hypocrisy, to abhor what is evil, to cling to what is good, to be hospitable. Brotherly love is to be the hallmark Brotherly love is to be the hallmark of the saints of God. And we can't love those that we don't trust. We can't love someone that we live in fear of. Because you know what John wrote in his epistles. 1 John chapter 4. And verses thir- starting at verse 13. 1 John 4.13 You know what he wrote. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, the love of God, perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. Fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. See, we, apart from the love of God, apart from the life of being in Christ, we can't love anybody. We can't trust anybody the way God intends us to love and the way God intends us to trust. We can't have the unity in this local congregation that God intends. But if we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if I am in Christ, then we have no excuse for not loving one another, trusting one another, and dwelling in unity. That's our call by our King as to how we should live this life in this wicked world. By this, by our love for one another, the world will know 
that we are His disciples. May God give us grace to walk as children of the light. Let's pray.